Okay, Sephirion. Kim. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Thanks for coming. Um, as per usual, let's start with a prayer and we'll dive in. All right, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, tonight we bless you and praise you. Uh, and Lord, again, just like every Wednesday, I'm sure all of us had a full day today. And Lord, with all of our anxieties, our fears, our hopes, um, all the things we feel right now, Lord, we give those to you. Uh, we ask you to <clears throat> calm our hearts and our minds uh, and to allow us just to be present here tonight. Pray for all of those who are uh, maybe struggling more. Uh, Lord, be with them. Uh, and Jesus, just guide our class tonight. And we give our class to you tonight through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Um, can anyone help us? It's always good to kind of recap where we were last week. Does anybody want to recap at all? Can we remind you? What did we talk about last week? Okay, the soul. We got to Revelation a little bit. Okay. Tell me about the soul, Luke. Uh, the different, well, I guess it was a little more the previous session, different types of souls, but um, yeah, I guess that was more the previous session. Well, we talked the to, right, so two, two uh, classes ago, two classes when I was gone, yeah. you guys talked about different types, but last class we did talk about that. So can anybody tell me why, how, how do we know that the soul exists? This is the part where you make me feel like I'm a good teacher, by the way. <laughs> Anybody, how do we know the soul exists? Yeah. Okay, there's emotions, those are part of the soul. That's good. Okay, what else? Okay, morality, good and bad. Okay, uh, that, that's more at the heart of it. Um, how is that proven soul exists? There's good and bad. Um, that we're not just a bunch of chemical reactions. Good. So like, so things that are merely physical, and, and think about it this way, right? So the soul is not a physical thing. You can't touch it. You can't see it. <clears throat> But if, if all that we are is physical things, physical things can't really be moral. And the reason they can't be moral is because they don't have the F word, freedom. That was such a priest joke. <laughs> so you know you're at a Catholic church, like, oh, the F word, right? They don't have freedom. And so something that's not free can't be moral, right? So, um, so the joke I make every year about this, right, is that, like, a dog has a certain amount of freedom. It certainly does. 
but it's different than the kind of freedom you and I have. So when your dog pees on the carpet, right, some of you probably grab your dog by the face or the collar, and you're like, okay, Fido, you did this on purpose. Shame on you. And people do that, but we, we all kind of, I think, implicitly know dogs don't really do that on purpose. Right? Like, you can train them. They're like, okay, if I pee on my rug, my master is going to be angry. So I shouldn't pee in the house. You can train a dog to do that. Um, but animals... They, they do have a, a certain level of freedom, but it has not yet risen to the level where animals really choose good and evil. Which is why we don't consider in the animal kingdom. So, so one of my staff this week was showing a video of an eagle hunting another animal. And, it was, and she showed it to a bunch of staff members, and another staff member said, oh my gosh, it just murdered that deer. No, it didn't, right? Like in the animal world, there's not such a thing as murder. And the reason that human beings in history have said that is because they don't have the same level of freedom that you and I have. An animal does not sit down, think deeply about what is right and what is wrong, and say, this is a harder choice, but I choose it because it's right. As far as we know, and again, if, if animals did that tomorrow, if we discovered, hey, we're wrong, we figured out animals do that, by the way, this wouldn't bother Christians. We would just say, oh, wow, they have a higher level of freedom than we thought. But the point is this. Physical matter does not have freedom. Things that are merely physical, it's, a, it's, it's basically impossible to explain freedom. And, and, and how did we move the word basically? It's impossible. People have tried very hard for very long. Neuroscientists who want to be atheists try to prove this. They have failed miserably. Um, and the reason, right, like, if you're only a bunch of cells, if you are only physical matter, physical matter tends to be like pool balls, right? You got the eight ball, and it hits the seven, whatever, which hits the one... And, and you say, okay, the one ball chose to go into the pocket. No, it didn't. Right? You would never say that about a pool ball. A pool ball, the one was hit by the seven, was hit by the eight. And one of the reasons that human beings, for as long as we know about human beings, have believed in the soul, and the most intelligent among us, of course there are intelligent people who don't, um, but the reason I think it's very unintelligent not to believe in the soul is if you don't believe in the soul, you must say that freedom doesn't exist. And people who are smart atheists and smart, the word for this is materialism, materialism does not mean, right, as I always say every year, it's not Madonna, right? I'm a material girl, and we're living in a material world, right? All the young people are like, when the H-E double hockey sticks are you talking about? <laughs> Go back and live the 80s. Um, 
We don't mean that. Materialism means only physical things exist. That's what materialism means in philosophy. If you are a materialist, the really smart philosophers who are smart enough and in, have enough integrity to be consistent, they, when you are a materialist, you are also what we call a determinist. And what a determinist, what that means, is that freedom doesn't exist. You thought that you chose to come here tonight. You thought that you made a decision to say, okay, uh, HGTV is doing Malibu. Oh. But you know what, Father Brian has great hair. We're going to RCIA, right? And you think that's the decision you made. If you don't believe in the soul, that makes no sense. The soul is, a, is something that is not like just a pool ball that gets hit by another pool ball, and so reacts. And a lot of people today want to say, you think you chose X, Y, or Z. No, you didn't. An atom fired in your brain, it hit another atom, which hit that atom, and that's what caused you to come tonight, even when you thought you chose that. And so the ultimate, there are other proofs for this, but this is kind of where we leave it, because otherwise we end up doing a semester-long course on every topic we do in RCIA. But what ends up happening is that if you want to believe that right and wrong exist, and that you are responsible for doing something evil, and you are to be praised when you choose something that's good and that's difficult. If you want to believe those things, it's very, very intellectually dishonest, or at least difficult, to believe those things if you don't believe in the soul. The soul is something of you that isn't a neuron that fired in you that caused you to do something. Right? If, I, if I chose to risk my life and jump in a river in the middle of January to save a, a child who was drowning, why would you praise me if it was just a neuron that fired? To cause a neuron, to cause a neuron, another neuron. And it was just a logical consequence of a chain of causes. It doesn't make sense, right? <clears throat> Similarly, and people believe this today, the, the rapist murderer, if, if we don't have a soul, you can't throw him in prison. Because he didn't choose that. A series of neurons and other causes, there was a, you know, the dominoes fall. A domino fell, hit another domino, hit another one, hit another one, hit another one. He didn't choose to rape that girl and murder her. It was a necessary chain of events. A lot of very intelligent people today, who are probably way smarter than me, believe that. That's fine. If, if you believe that, there is no right and wrong. Right? There is no praise or blame. You didn't choose to come here tonight, and the deepest thing um, is love. If, if you hold to that theory of reality, you can hold to it. You can be logically consistent. And there are men and women who are logically consistent and very intelligent who hold to that. 
and they deny that love exists. Because love is something deeply spiritual. And what they tend to end up saying is they tend to say, you think you love that guy or that girl, or your child, or your grandma, or whatever. But really what is going on is, is a evolutionary biological process to preserve the species. And again, just to be clear, I believe in evolution, not, not as an explanation of all of reality, but I do believe in evolution, as did Pope Benedict, or does Pope Benedict, as did St. John Paul II, and Pius XII, and all kinds of modern Catholic saints. It's fine to believe in evolution, we have no problem with that. But if that's it, our world's a lot different than you and I experience it. Right? <clears throat> we don't really live in a world where the deepest part of being a human being is about loving someone else, loving others, and choosing decisions that matter. And so lastly, I know I always go too long in like reviewing last week, but if that's true, everything I experience every day of my life is a lie. Because everything in my experience says, Brian, what you choose matters. You are a responsible adult. And if you make the wrong decision, that actually matters. Um, okay, that's a lot of information. Let's pause there. Questions, complaints, pushback, comments. Yes, I am slowly losing my hair. I did not choose that, so it's not a moral act. Okay. I have a little water here. As you related? No. Then wait. Okay. I said, okay, so then to start tonight, two quick questions, or questions, stories. So my brother Sean is an amazing marathon runner. He won the Denver Marathon one year. So I'm not like making this up. He's incredible. Um, and one year in college, he convinced me to run a marathon with him. I am not a great marathon runner. Right? <laughs> but we ran one. I did it one year with him when we, we did the Chicago Marathon. And I was so, like, I was just an idiot college kid. <clears throat> and when you're running a marathon, you're running 60, 70, 80 miles a week. And you drink so much water, you get sick of it. And as a junior in college, I didn't know that beer was a dehydrant. And so I thought Coors Light, I'm like, Coors Light, it's basically water. <laughs> so like, I would do a 20 mile run, and I'd be like, I'm so sick of water, I'm just gonna have like three Coors Lights. <laughs> Bad idea, okay? Um, which leads us to God, no, I'm just kidding. Um, so one of the things we're gonna do in class here is, if you decide to become Catholic, one of the things you have to do is pick a saint that we call your confirmation saint. 
And your confirmation saying, what that means is we believe the saints are people who lived exemplary lives, and we believe they are in heaven. And they're not, they're not just dead, they're more alive than we are. And we believe the church is a family. And when you choose a saint, your saint is someone who prays for you, who's a model for you. And if you talk to Catholics, oftentimes what we'll say is it kind of feels sometimes like you didn't actually pick them, but they picked you. And so what's going to happen is a lot of nights, try to do it every week, but that doesn't always happen. But I want to tell you about saints. And Pope Benedict, again, who you'll hear me quote all the time, Pope Benedict is one of the greatest intellects of the 20th century. Um, and that's not just Catholics who think that. Lots of people think that. Um, Pope Benedict says that the outside of the life of Christ himself the greatest witness to the truth of the Catholic faith is the lives of the saints. So if I stand here, we're not going to get to morality for a little while. It's going to be in the spring. But if I stood up tonight and I said, hey, abortion's wrong, and here's why, probably what would happen is a lot of you would be like, if you already think that, you'd be like, all right, way to go, FB. And if you didn't believe that, you'd be like, oh, I'm so done with RCIA. Mother Teresa, in like the 80s, went and spoke at Harvard. And she got up in front of all these Harvard professors and students and said the greatest evil on earth is abortion. And she got a standing ovation. And it wasn't because she said anything that was like better than I could say it. It's because she's Mother Teresa. Right? <laughs> And there's something, there's something about that. There's something when someone lives a life that is just different, it just speaks to us, right? Okay, so I want to talk about one saint tonight. We're going to do this a lot. So I want to talk about Maximilian Kolbe. Okay, how many of you know him? So, Maximilian Kolbe, I'm going to be a little rusty on exact dates and those kinds of things tonight, so go home and look him up. Um, so, Maximilian Kolbe is one of the greatest saints of the last century. Um, so, he's a Polish saint, and Maximilian Kolbe, when he was a young man, he had, he had a vision of Mary. And so, the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared to him, and in her hands, she had two crowns. One was red, one was white. <laughs> Sorry, every time I talk about saints, I like lose it because it's so powerful. So he, she had two crowns and she said, and, and in the Christian tradition, you and I are called to become kings and queens and, and to be victorious. And so she asked him, and the red crown was a was a crown of martyrdom. The white was a crown of purity. And she asked him, she said, okay, Maximilian, which crown do you desire? And he asked for both. And that happened. So anyway, so in his life, so he became a Franciscan, and with time we'll talk about what that means. The Franciscans are like St. Francis of Assisi. They wear the brown robes with the white ropes around their waist. It looks kind of cool. 
So he became a Franciscan, um, and he lived a life where he just gave up his life for God. And he said, if this is true, I'm going to give my whole life for it. Even that is inspiring, right? So he, he did that. He joined the Franciscans. He became a priest. And he ended up going to Japan. And so he, he did a lot of things in his life, but he gave his life to basically say, this is the truth for every single person on earth. And so I will leave behind my family, my friends, my wife, everything that mattered to me, I'll leave it behind. And I'll go to Japan to teach Christianity. So he did. He lived a life of poverty. He was celibate. He was obedient. He went to Japan. Um, there's a lot more to his life, but for brevity's sake, he ends up making his way back to Europe. And during World War II, he was arrested. And he was sent to a concentration camp, to Auschwitz. And so, uh, super powerful, but he, was, he went to Auschwitz. And what they would do in concentration camps, so priests were kind of... The Jews, of course, were the greatest object of the Holocaust. The Nazis, of course, wanted to exterminate the Jews. Priests also, they were pretty high up on their list. Um, so Colby is in Auschwitz, and what happened is someone escaped. And what they would do in Auschwitz and in different concentration camps is when someone escapes, what they do is they say, you can go. Um, but just know that we will line up 10 people who remain and we will shoot every one of them. So they did that. So this guy escaped and they picked 10 prisoners. And they line them up for the firing squad. And at the last moment, a man falls on his knees, breaks down, he says, he says, okay, don't shoot me. He's like, please, I beg you. He says, I have a wife and children. Please don't shoot me. I gotta tell less emotional stories per se. So Colby says, he's in, he's in Auschwitz, and he volunteers to take his place. So he volunteers, he takes that guy's place, and what they end up doing is they decide not to shoot them what they do is they, Kobe takes his place and he says, I'm a priest. You guys don't particularly like priests. I'll take his place. So Kobe goes in and what they do is they put him in starvation bunkers. And the Nazis, the reason we know about all this, by the way, is the Nazis kept meticulous records. So they put these prisoners in a starvation bunker. Terrible stuff. So usually in a starvation bunker, what happens is as time passes, the prisoners kind of lose their minds. And they get angry, and they hate everyone and everything. And the records the Nazis left us, ironically, they became, they became witnesses to his holiness. Um, in that starvation bunker, St. Maximilian Kolbe... <laughs> had the prisoners singing hymns of praise to God. Incredible stuff. 
So they're, they're peaceful, they're singing, and one by one they die. And at the end, he's the last one left. Everyone else has passed away. He's the last one. Uh, and so what they did is they got tired of waiting for him to die. So they took him to a room and they gave him a lethal injection to kill him. And said so the last thing we know about Colby, the Nazis recorded this, is they injected him, and they tell us in the in the records they kept that when they injected him, his body started to give off a faint glow. That he actually radiated something of light. And then he died. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, you're gonna see me like get emotional a lot. I think my mom's watching and I blame you. Um, that's, I get it from her. Isn't that beautiful though? Um, powerful story. These are the men and women who say to us, in all of our lives, like, there's faith, there's doubt. We have hopes, we have fears. But when we hear these stories, which are true, right? This is not an obscure thing that happened in the darkness somewhere. This this happened in World War II. Um, I hear that and I'm like, wow, I want to live for God. I want to live a life that matters. I want to live for things that are true and good. And at the core of my soul, I'm like, I believe that. I believe that I am made to live for something greater than myself. And the saints help us that. Okay. Pause. Questions, comments, complaints. So when you find books on saints, and, is there a repository from the Catholic Church? Well, all over. Um, so I, I literally, if you want a book, Amazon, you know, just Google it on Amazon. There's a traditional... Um, if you want, like, tons of saints, there's a, a collection called Butler's Lives of the Saints that is going to have tons of saints in it, but it'll be less in-depth, of course. Um, but there's Maximilian Colby. If you just Googled Amazon or you went to Amazon and looked, you'd, you know, there, there'll be books there. Yeah. Can you tell us about a new advent? Yes, thank you. So it's just a URL, which is kind of like an online bibli bibliography of everything Catholic. You just look up any saint. There's a lot of stuff on, on saints. I think it's .org. Yeah, .org. .org. Yeah, newadman.org. That's a great website. And it's all free, and they also have um, church documents and teachings and all kinds of things. Yeah, Seth? Um, can someone ask, who is someone a saint? Great question. So... In the Catholic Church, so the word saint, um, saint comes from the Latin, and so the word for saint in Latin is just santus, and all that means is, is holy. And so a saint, and the New Testament uses this all the time, the Greek word is hagios, um, and all it means is someone who's holy. Now in the church, so, so the New Testament, when St. Paul writes letters, he'll say to all the saints in Denver. There's no 
letter to Denver in the New Testament, but that's what he says. He'll say it to all the saints in Corinth, or all the saints in Philippi, all the saints in Rome. And all that means is, it means us. It means you and I who are called to be holy. We live differently, right? We don't just live according to pleasure and power and prestige, but we live our lives a little differently. And every one of us in this room, certainly me, we always feel like we're not where we should be. I'm certainly not there. Um, so in the New Testament, saint just means, basically it means a Christian in the New Testament. But the church, with time, has developed into saints in English. And what we mean by that is we mean someone who is not just any Christian, but someone who is a model Christian. And there's, there's when, a church, when the church declares someone a saint, what we're saying by that is we say, this person is in heaven. Now, for a lot of people, it's like, that's kind of arrogant. Right? Like, how do you know that person's in heaven? We'll get to that in a second. But don't you love that? I, I don't know about you, but I freaking love that. The church says, we know, we know this person's in heaven. Guess what? The Catholic Church does not have a list of those in H-E-double hockey sticks. Don't you love that? Right? I love that. There is no, there is no counterpart where we say, okay, we have now declared this person to be damned. We don't have that. Thank God. Right? And I don't know about you, but I'm like, I want the bar to be as low as possible. Right? We don't have that. It doesn't exist. So the church is very hopeful. And the church has thousands and thousands of saints. And what that's meant to do is inspire you. I hope the story of St. Maximilian Colby inspires you and says, wow, life is hard. It's really hard to get through life. It's hard to be a good person. It's hard to follow God. But guess what? There's thousands of saints. And that's meant to say to us, you can do it. You can live a heroic life. None of them are perfect. Not a single one of them. Jesus and Mary, we'll get to that. Um, but other than that, none of them are perfect. But they lived heroic lives. And what else do you want to live for? You want to live for a nice house or a nice retirement? Lame. Totally lame, boring. Why would you live for that? You're so much greater than that. We all know it. You're all greater than that. We're called to something much more than that. Okay, so... Who declares a, a saint a saint? What the church does is when someone dies and they lived a very holy life, at least it looks that way, what happens is someone proposes it. And usually it's like a bishop of a diocese. So the bishop here might propose and say, um, I don't know, and they, they would say, Anya Semenov is a saint. And, right, you better be. And Archbishop Aquila says, we need to, to, to name her as a saint because her life was not just holy, but it was, it's a model for every Christian. Right? Every Christian can look at Maximilian Colby and say, wow, that speaks to me. So they do that, and then what happens, is, have you ever heard of the devil's advocate? Of course you have. That comes from the saint process. 
So the church appoints someone who is the devil's advocate. And what that means is their job is like, we really want to make sure this person really is a model for the church. And so we're not just going to take this person's word on it that they were holy. That person's job is to dig up dirt on that, that person. And, just, and it's like a court case. Their, their role is to say, nope, they weren't a saint. And so the, fir the first step is that person, they examine everything they ever wrote, any history we have of them whatsoever, and that's kind of the first round. Um, after that, and this is the really cool part, is like, people say, well, how do you know they're in heaven, though? Well, after they die, there have to be two miracles. Which is so cool, right? A lot of times the way that happens is through medical miracles. Someone's dying, and they're like, the doctors are like, okay, there's no hope. Like, I've seen a thousand cases this way. I'm so sorry. Your daughter's going to die. And then what happens is a group of the family, whatever, and they say, we're going to go pray to St. Maximilian Kolbe, or before he was a saint, we're going to pray to him, we're going to beg for a miracle. There have to be two miracles, and the Vatican will send out experts in science or whatever area it is to investigate. And basically the only way that person becomes a saint is if there's a miracle that defies <clears throat> rational explanation. And so all that has to come together. We look at their life and we say, okay, God is faithful. We don't believe that like only two people are in heaven. This person loved God, lived a heroic life. And then there's two miracles that happened. And the church is like, right? And they're like, okay. Let's see, let's see if I can catch it. Oh, yes. Um, so that, that, that's how the process works. Yeah, Luke. Why as Catholics do we believe it's okay to pray to saints? I know not all Christians are on board with that. Yeah, why do we pray to saints? There's a very easy answer to this. We're going to talk about this a lot as class passes, but the quick answer, why do we pray to saints? It's the same reason if you're coming from a Protestant background, right? if you're a Christian but you're not a Catholic, um, the, what they would say is they would say, okay, um, Luke, you're having a hard time why would you say, St. Maximilian, will you pray for me? Why would, God is infinite. He's all-powerful. Um, and he loves you more than anything. Why would you go to somebody else? Why wouldn't you say, Jesus, will you help me? It's a pretty good question, right? And, and the answer is very simple. The answer is that um, it's the same reason why I ask you guys to pray for me. Which, if you're coming from a Protestant background... Certainly, you have your friends pray for you. You're like, hey, I'm struggling. And when someone says, hey, well, my, my friend, like, Stephanie, will you pray for me? No one ever comes up to me and says, why would you ask Stephanie to pray for you? Why would you not just go to God? That's blasphemous. As Christians, we believe the saints are more alive than Stephanie is on this earth. And then here's the better example. The better example is about my brother, Sean. So my older brother has four kids, and I love this story from him. Is, so Sean has four kids. Claire Jane is now in high school, which freaks me out more than you can believe. <laughs> like, holy crap, am I getting old? 
Claire Jane is in high school. So if Claire Jane, who's the oldest, is in the kitchen, and Lucy, who's the youngest, who is like a total like fireball pistol lover, but out of control. So if Lucy, Lucy's like, you know, this tall. If Lucy's like in the kitchen and Sean's there, and so it's Claire Jane, and Lucy says, hey, Claire Jane, I want a bowl of cereal. Grab me the cereal. My brother isn't jealous. And the way that non-Catholic Christians tend to see this is that God is jealous when his children ask each other for help. So if I go to Maximilian Kolbe, God somehow is displeased by that because he's infinitely greater than Maximilian Kolbe. My brother, if he's in the kitchen, he doesn't say to Claire Jane or to Lucy, he doesn't say, hey, Lucy, I'm your dad. I bought that cereal. I bought it. Not Claire Jane. Guess what? I'm 6'4". Ask me. Right? He doesn't do that. My brother, when his two daughters love each other, my brother's heart rejoices. And this is the secret about the saints, is that God, of course God is infinitely greater than the saints, but the point isn't just that we get what we want. The point is that God wants us to love him, but when we love him, we love each other. And that's what the church is. The church is meant to be a place where we love each other, and the saints are our brothers and sisters. And there's something just so beautiful about that. There's, and, and, and in modern America, we have a very individualistic society. And so we think, me and God, me and God, me and God. Catholics don't think that way. Catholics think, of course, God is the center of everything. He is infinitely greater than any one of us. But what God does is he creates a family. And we're actually supposed to love each other. And God is not threatened or upset or jealous when we love each other. Isn't that good? Okay, other questions? Steph? Um, they, were, they asked, what do you mean when you say that saints are more alive than us? Yeah, so what do I mean when I say saints are more alive than us? What we mean is that when you go to heaven, right, that, that the life of heaven is much more so than the life of earth. And so, yes, saints, the, the ones that we've we've named as saints, they've died, but we believe that they are in the place of the fullness of life. And so that's what we mean is like, they actually have a more full life than we have here. They're united to God. God is the source of all life, by the way. Um, and that's when we talked about the proof for the existence of God, that the strongest proof, we talk about how none of us can exist without him. It's impossible. It's logically impossible. Um, the saints are perfectly united to God in heaven. And so they, they participate in a fuller life than we have here on earth. Which is exciting, right? Heaven is not just like, all right, well, it's just like now, but it goes on forever. <laughs> cool. Played this golf course three million times now. <laughs> you know, that's not heaven. Heaven is, a, is not just like it goes on forever. Heaven is a greater, a greater life. Yeah? Is there marriages in heaven? 
Why are you guys asking all the hard questions? <laughs> yeah. So, um, are there marriages in heaven? The answer is both and. So, yes and no. But the way you're asking the question, the answer is no. And Jesus teaches this clearly in heaven. And here's, we're going to talk about this more in depth in a later section of the class. But this is the reason I'm celibate. The reason that I'm not married is because my life, that the best thing on earth is marriage. It's the best thing on earth. Um, when it goes well. Right? Um, marriage is what we're made for. But what we believe about heaven is that um, it's greater than anything on earth. And the fact that when priests or religious sisters are, are not married, one of the things that we, one, one of the reasons we do that, we're going to talk about that more in depth. One reason why is because my life is supposed to be a witness to you that as good as the best thing on earth is, the life of God is better. And it's worth suffering for. Why, but, but heaven is described in the Bible as a wedding feast. And here, when most people hear, when they hear there's no marriage in heaven, they're like, okay, I'm out. <laughs> um, and here's the, the important point. People fear, they say, well, does that mean I won't love my spouse in heaven? Could, could you guys? No, just kidding. <laughs> yes, you will. And, here, and here's the answer. You will love your spouse in heaven more than you ever love them on earth. Far more. You will know them far greater than you ever knew them on earth, and you will love them much more, and you will be loved by them much more. But you will love everyone that way. And in heaven, the love that binds us is a love that is in God, and it unites all of us. So you will, your spouse in heaven, you will be much closer than you could ever dream of being on earth, but but it will be integrated into a love that extends beyond that. Pretty good answer. Right? I know, otherwise there's no way I'm going to be celibate because I'm like, I get jealous of marriage. Yeah. Please. No worries. I'm just building myself up. So I just wanted to go back to the thing you said. I think that thing Interesting. So come back at me. Sure. So yeah, I think that's the hang up. So so do you mean? So you say and correct. Just come back at me. So you've been taught when you die you're separated. Do you mean in marriage or just in general? No, I'm talking about training things. So back to the training. So just in general. Yeah, they're they're in they're in heaven. Doing the heaven thing and. No communication. Okay, I see. So, so between heaven and earth, you're saying yeah, there's I'm like sorry, a no. That's okay. I, it's probably my fault. This water's strong. Um, yeah. So, so there's no sep there's a separation. So a couple things I'd say. First thing is like if you just think of the Bible, right? Like here's one quick answer off the top of my head. Why are there angels who come to earth all the time? If angels are a part of heaven, which certainly they are, that's all over the Bible. Um, Isaiah 6 comes to mind, Revelation 7. 
angels are a part of heaven, but then God sends Gabriel, he sends Raphael, he sends other to earth. Um, and then there's all kinds of scripture passages. And the first one that, that pops into my mind is in Hebrews chapter 12. So what happens is in Hebrews chapter 11, St. Paul or whoever wrote Hebrews, we don't actually know, whoever wrote that letter, in Hebrews chapter 11, they walk through all the great saints. They're, they're, they're not quite using it yet the way that we are. But they're talking about all the great heroes of the Old Testament. And they walk through person by person. And then in Hebrews 12, the author says, since we are surrounded, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. And Hebrews 12 has this great idea that we're not alone. You're not running this race by yourself. You're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. And then in the book of Revelation, what happens is the saints in heaven offer up prayers that are incense in front of the altar of God. And I have to look up that reference because Revelation yeah, isn't as... Right? And so, so actually, I, I would say like the, the, the prayers of heaven, it's very scriptural that that does affect earth. Um, ab it absolutely is. It's all over the Bible that people in heaven can pray for those on earth. And so the, so the Catholic idea of that, that's, that's really where it's grounded. Okay. Anybody else? why we never get anywhere. <laughs> Don't you love it? Isn't this great? I'm, I'm always like, I love RCIA. I hope you do. This is like my favorite night of the week. Okay, Steph. Bathroom break. Bathroom break. Five minute break. Um, and we'll pick back up. Three minutes. Three minutes. Yeah, go fast. About scenes or what? Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, we're back on. Um, okay, so, so a couple last things. Um, so trying to push the needle forward where we're at in class, 
So one thing I've, I was talking to my priest friends about, and this is a very deep, deep, deep question, but we've been talking a little bit about how do we know God exists? And this is, this is a very deep thing, but I think it's something that you'll get. So when we try to say, how do we know God exists? What we look for is a measure. And what we look for is we say, we know, we know this thing is true. And we say, I know this is true. I know this is absolutely true. I trust this. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, well, let's measure God against that and see if it lines up. So think about this for a second. Um, if we say, if we want to make a scientific argument, we say, hey, I'm going to propose that, um, I don't know, this is where I'm going to sound dumb, I don't know. The way, the way this bodily process works is through this. And so what science does is it says, okay, well, that's a nice hypothesis. Let's test it against something we know is true. Or a simpler example would be if I say, okay, hey, I know that that door is eight feet high, which I don't. But let's just say I'm like, that, that door is eight feet tall. And if you wanted to test me, what would you do to test if that was true? Tape measure. Yeah, grab a tape measure. And here's my point. The reason you would do that is because you trust the tape measure. Right? And so we look for something that's more true, something more certain, to test something that we see as less certain. Does that make sense? And what a lot of very, very deep philosophers and theologians want to say is that because God is infinite, there is nothing more true than him. There is nothing you can use to measure him. You can't measure him with something else. He is the measure by which everything else is measured. This is deep stuff. Um, I was praying and thinking about this, but actually, like, the more I've... And, like, this isn't just, like, a new thought... This is something I've thought about for years and years and read in many, many different places. If you really want to, like, make your brain hurt, think about that for a while. Um, if you wanted to say something with 60 seconds, we have things we say, okay, well, we'll, we'll I'll get out my stopwatch. But what if there is no such thing as time? And what, the, what the, the deep thinker about God wants to say is that God is so infinitely beyond us that if you're searching for something that is greater than God, you will search in vain. Huh. It's like way too deep. But like, as I've read that from some great theologians and thinkers, the more I've prayed and thought about that, I'm like, it's 100% true. Um, 
Okay, we'll come back to that. If you guys have questions more as class progresses about how do we know God exists, we can come back to that. Um, again, I would encourage you, you can find our classes, previous classes online, and I would just submit to you, it's unintelligent to think that God doesn't exist. And, and that doesn't, I'm not meaning that to be pejorative or judgment on others, but I do think that people who don't believe in God, who are very smart, way smarter than I am, they, they, they don't believe in God not because the evidence isn't there, but because they don't want to. Or some other reason. Probably, you know, a lot of times it's very complex. Okay, so let's talk about Revelation. So we talked a little bit about this last time, I think. Um, so where we're at in class, right, if you remember, like, three big questions, right? Does God exist? Is Jesus God? And the third one is, did he give authority to the Catholic Church? Those are our three big questions. So we're still very much at the beginning here. Um, and so here's our next thing is like the Aristotle, Plotinus, Plato, um, St. Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, Averroes, Avicenna, um, Leibniz, like many of the brightest minds in history, they say this is indisputable. And I'm just convinced of that not only intellectually, but also everything in my heart and soul, it lines up. It's like a key that you put in a door and it fits. Um, but how do we know this? And so we can come to a place of like, it makes rational sense that God exists, right? And, and again, just to remind you, Aquinas is proof of the existence of God is that nothing right now, not back in history, but right now, you cannot explain how anything can exist without an infinite being that doesn't need something else to cause it. I, that, that argument has never been refuted. It has been refuted. Okay. But what you end up there is like, well, how do I, okay, well, great, there's a God. Well, I don't know much about that God. That God is apparently very powerful, very intelligent, et cetera, et cetera, but I don't know much more. So revelation means that, and I think we talked about this. You guys have to remind me, I'll forget what we talked about, what we didn't, because I've taught this class um, 10 times now. So I can't remember, but anyway, you can know, we need to talk about this. You can know certain things about me, right? You can look at me, you know certain things, but you can only know certain things if I decide to reveal them. You can't know how I'm feeling right now in my heart and soul. You can't know the deeper things inside of me unless I choose to reveal them. And so Christianity says, we can know God exists, but we wouldn't know much about God because any serious thinker about God not the person you meet on the street who's not thinking deeply about this, but serious thinkers about this and what the Catholic Church teaches and other serious religious thinkers. You, what they all say is you trying to understand God is like an ant trying to understand you. And far more. We can't do it. It's far beyond us. So the only way we can do it is if God says, 
I'm going to reveal myself to you. Right? It's kind of like why you get nervous when you tell someone you like them. Remember when you were dating? You're like, And, why do, and it's a little risky, right? You have to reveal something of your heart. So what Christians believe is that, and, and again, people come up to me all the time and they say, well, Father Brian, you know, I think God's like this. And usually when that happens, they, they don't want to actually talk. You ever had this conversation? You know when you talk to someone and they don't, they don't want a conversation? They just want you to listen to why they're right. Right? We've all been there. You've done it too, so have I. Um, my uncles do this to me. God bless you if you're watching. They're not. <laughs> but my uncles who have left the Catholic faith, they have a nephew who's a priest. And we get together at family gatherings, and they're like, Brian, let me tell you about God. And I'm like, I don't know everything. I'm like, okay, tell me about God. And they don't, they don't want a conversation. They're just going to tell me how it is, right? And here's what separates just religious opinion from real Catholic and Christian thought and real theological thought is I don't know anything about God except what he has told us himself. Does that make sense? If you want to know a girl's heart, I can't, I can guess at things and be like, uh, bet she loves lilies. They probably don't because that's why I'm a priest. <laughs> but whatever. Be like, oh, I, bet, I bet this is her favorite band, you know. And who knows, maybe, maybe you can pick that up. But really what you need is you want, you need that girl to reveal her heart to you. What Christians believe is that we can know certain things about God, but only the vague outlines. On my own, I can know God exists. I can know that God is powerful, all-powerful, all-knowing, all that kind of thing, but not much else. Okay, so revelation means that God has to reveal himself. And this is why when my uncles, when we get together at Thanksgiving, and my uncle said, well, Brian, you know, this is really what God's like. I just kind of smile, and I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, how do you know that? How do you know anything about God? Did he, did he reveal himself to you? Did he tell you that? And, and there's ne they, you know, we never get to that. So real quick, pause there. Does everybody get that? That's a basic concept, but it's massively important. Does everyone get that? Yeah, okay. You're giving me, some of you are giving me nods. Thank you. The rest of you are getting judged in my heart. Okay. <laughs> what Christians believe is that, and we talked a little bit about this, there's a, there's a distinction between public and private revelation. And here's what we mean by that. And again, I think we talked about this last time, which is why we never get anywhere. Um, public revelation means that it's something historical. It is open to public scrutiny. Which is why Christianity, by the way, in the, the, the most analyzed book in all of history, 
that has been held to more scrutiny than any other book in all of history is called the Bible. There's been no other book in all of history that has been as analyzed as much as the Bible has. And the historical record about Jesus. No, nothing in history has as much scrutiny as the life of Christ. And the reason why is because it was public. And this is why Christians have, and if you're coming from a Mormon background, I'm going to pick on Mormons a little bit here. Not because they're bad, they're very good. I know lots of Mormons who are amazing people, better people than I am. But Joseph Smith, right, his revelation from God was private. Yeah. Would Muhammad, would Islam be the same? Islam would be the same, right? So Muhammad claims that um, Allah <laughs> reveals things to him. And, and the natural question, right, is how do I know? So if one of you came up to me tonight and you said, Father Brian, God spoke to me during class and told me that you're supposed to leave the priesthood and go marry a girl and move to Telluride. <laughs> I'd be like, that sounds amazing. <laughs> just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I would never do that. I would never do that. But how would I know? How would I know that? There's no way of me knowing that. With Jesus, and this is what the New Testament claims. So last week, I forgot to kind of print these off again. But last week in your handouts, we finished last week, and at the bottom of the last week's handout, from Acts chapter 17, St. Paul, when he's preaching to a group of people in Athens, right, which is the intellectual center of the world at that time, St. Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Now imagine, and hang with me, I know, I know this a lot, hang with me. Imagine if I said, hey, God showed up in my living room last night with a message for you. And he told me that every one of you is supposed to give up Netflix. <laughs> but if I was serious, <laughs> if I was really serious, you'd be like, how am I supposed to know that? Right? If this is for everyone, why did God just appear to one person? So St. Paul goes on, he says, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. So here's what Catholics believe, and basically all Christians believe this, is that public revelation something that wasn't to one person in a closet in their room, or it wasn't a religious feeling they had, but this is a historical event. Today I was reading one of the top New Testament historians in the world talking about Pontius Pilate, and all the, Pontius Pilate, if you don't know, is the one who put Jesus on trial by the Romans. There's tons of evidence about Pontius Pilate. When I went to, I've been to Israel three times. When you go to Israel, you will go to Caesarea Maritima, which was built by Herod the Great. We have Herod the Great built more things than any other person in the world in the first century. There is more archaeological evidence for Herod the Great in the first century than anyone else on earth in that time. Herod the Great built a city in the north of Israel called Caesarea Maritima. He did that to flatter Caesar, Caesarea Maritima. And when you go to that city, you can go stand in the house of Pontius Pilate on the Mediterranean, and there are inscriptions of him there in that house that are historically 
undeniable. He had a really cool house. He had an infinity pool in the first century. Not kidding. It's amazing. I'll show you pictures after class if you want to see it. Like, right on the Mediterranean. Public. You can look up where Jesus was. I have been in the place where Jesus was judged by the Jews. I have stood there. I have been to Mount Calvary, right? Jesus Christ is not a figment of the imagination. He is more historically verifiable than any, period, any figure from that period that we know of. Okay. So, here we go. We've only got an hour left of class. <laughs> Okay, so I'm moving to the next topic. Questions about any of that? Yeah, Brian. Yeah, exactly. So, so private revelation, the Catholic Church believes those totally happen. So, for instance, Our Lady of Guadalupe, when Mary appeared to St. Juan Diego in, does anybody know the year? I don't know the year. It's like the 15th century. I don't know. So, whatever. Look up Juan Diego. 1474. So, Our Lady of Guadalupe appeared to St. Juan Diego. We'll probably talk about that one of these nights because it is, no one teaches this. It is freaking miraculous and unbelievable and it's crazy that not everyone on earth knows about this but it, it's an incredible thing but Mary appears to St. Juan Diego I a thousand percent believe it but the church's teaching is that to be a, a faithful Catholic you could a hundred percent say I don't believe that happened because what we believe is that God and we're going to talk a lot about this God sent his son and one of the things we call Jesus in, in Christianity is we call him the Word. And so one more joke, humor me. But there's, you've pr I've probably already told this. But um, there's an old joke that every priest knows about a Catholic school teacher. And this Catholic school teacher is, is teaching her kids, and they're drawing pictures about the life of Jesus. And she comes by, and there's a picture of um, Jesus on an airplane. And the teacher's like, oh, well, okay, Bobby, like, that's interesting. Like, can you tell me who this is? And he's like, you know, oh, yeah, well, you know, that's Jesus, and, and there's Mary, and there's Joseph. And the teacher says, well, who's that? You know, and, and the kid says, oh, you know, that's Pontius. That's the pilot. <laughs> right? Um, I don't know how I got on that whatsoever. Oh, it's a different thing that I meant to say. Hey, is that water? So the word, and here's and it's another one. I was thinking of two different stories. There's another like old priest joke, and I don't know if this ever happened. Probably it did, but who knows? But there's an old there's an old saying that says if you ask a, a group of kids and you say why is Jesus called the Word, the kids will say all kinds of things, and then there's like one kid who says, well, he says, or she. Let's go to the girl this time. The girl says. Because Jesus is everything God wanted to say to us. That's what we're getting at. Jesus is everything God wanted to say to us. And not just by what he said, but how he lived. How he lived, how he died, how he rose from the dead. And after that, God might say, hey, you know what? I'm going to send 
Mary or one of the saints, and they're going to appear to remind people to come back to what matters. But what the church believes is everything God had to say to us happened in Christ. And if you're coming from a, a Protestant background, a great verse for this, by the way, is Hebrews chapter 1. 1, 1 and following. Hebrews is coming up tonight. That's, that's the distinction. So God, so I believe that Mary appeared in Guadalupe and in Our Lady of Lourdes in France and Fatima in Portugal and all kinds of places. Knock in Ireland. I'm Irish, so that's the best of revelation ever is in Knock. The other joke about that, this is why we never get anywhere, in Knock in Ireland, Mary never said a word. And the big joke among Irishmen like me is because the Irish never stopped talking, so Mary couldn't get a word in. Right? <laughs> anyway, so... That's what we mean by public and private, is that the life of Christ is enough. It was for all time. It was for everyone. It's for every culture, every language, every man, woman, and child, everywhere. And it's enough. And God might send, just to help us out, he might say, hey, remember this? And whenever Mary appears, she never offers something new. She just says, turn back to my son. Turn back to him. Change your lives. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so the Ten Commandments is Moses on his own. Yes, he was, but it's also part of a public revelation. So for Christians, this doesn't matter as much, but it's a good question. Moses had both a public and a private revelation. So when, when the Ten Commandments happened, so the Jews come to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. And when they come to Mount Sinai, God appears. And here's the public part is that God descends on Mount Sinai in fire, in a cloud and with fire, which is the same, same thing that happened in Exodus, what's related. In Exodus 3 is the burning bush. So Moses encounters God through fire, and the Jews all at the same spot, God descends on Mount Sinai in fire, and there's something public about that. They actually hear the voice of God and they tremble. Then the Ten Commandments come in Exodus chapter 12. And Moses goes up the mountain for that. So that there is an aspect of private revelation there. Um, but for Christians, right, this matters, and we believe this is a revelation of God. But for us, the revelation of God is Jesus. He's everything. Does that make sense? Okay, one last question, and then we're going to wrap up for the night with one last You're right, and so there's, there, there's a mixture there. But the Jews certainly, this what they weren't just called to say, hey, Moses, I think you're pretty cool, I trust you, that you saw God. Like, Mount Sinai's on fire. There's external things happening yeah. to Moses. Mount Sinai's on fire. Um, and they hear the voice of God, and when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, 
His face radiates the glory of God. So there's, there's public elements of that revelation. Um, okay, so that's one last topic tonight, and here's, here's kind of the starting point of Christianity. You could slice the pie different ways, but here's where Christianity started. The moment that Christianity really started was at the resurrection. And I want to hit you on the head with this. Um, a very, I forgot to bring that book tonight. I might have brought it last week. I think I did. So a common thing you might hear from people today is they say, well, the resurrection is a just common myth. That is just false. It's just false. So if you have your sheets, great. If not, no worries. Let me read a quote to you. So this is N.T. Wright. So N.T. Wright, you'll hear me quote him a lot. N.T. Wright is widely considered the top New Testament scholar in the entire world. Um, he taught at Oxford and Cambridge. He now teaches at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He's freaking brilliant. He's like just off the chart smart. Doesn't mean he's right, but he's, he's not someone to kind of like just kind of write off. So N.T. Wright says this. He says, he says, most of the ancients believed in life after death. If you go back to the ancient world, just like today, everyone believes in heaven. Right? I bet you're, you're like atheist friends. Maybe you're one of them. Your atheist friends, when their mom or dad dies, they talk about heaven. Maybe not all of them, but some of them do. Pretty much everybody still believes in heaven. The same thing is true in the time of Christ. So most of the ancients believed in life after death. Some of them developed complex and fascinating beliefs about it, which we have only just touched on. But outside of Judaism and Christianity, and perhaps Zoroastrianism, though the dating of that is controversial, so nice little parentheses, they did not believe in resurrection. And I just want to hammer you with this. No one, no one, no one, no one, in the ancient world, believe that, that dead bodies came back to life. And N.T. Wright, the, the book that's from, so he has a book on the resurrection, and lots of people have been making that claim that, oh, the Egyptians believed in resurrection, and the Babylonians did, and the Assyrians. And he does the hard work where he says, he goes through every claim people ever make about that, and he just shows how it's patently false. What they believed in was something like a soul appearing. That is not resurrection. And let's, let's make that distinction really quick. So, life after death, being deemed, does not equal resurrection. Can anybody tell me what's the difference between those two things? The physical body was brought back to life. Okay, good. Physical body. Thank you for answering. Everybody else was looking at the floor. Right? Don't make eye contact. Okay. Yeah. So life after death means, has anybody ever said to you, so, so here's the perfect example. So my grandmother, who I consider a saint, church hasn't canonized her and named her as a saint. I think she's that. <laughs> but that's just me. My grandmother, she died, I, I don't know, five years ago. Um, 
My grandmother's body is in a grave at Mount Olivet Cemetery in Wheat Ridge. That is where her body is. You probably have people you love who have died, and their bodies are buried somewhere. But people say all the time, they say, oh, she's in heaven. And if you stop to think about it, you're like, well, that can't mean her body, right? What, they, what people mean by that is her soul or spirit is with God. That's, and, and, and the point is, and this is what St. Paul is saying in Acts chapter 17, it's really easy to say that. And I'm not trying to pick on people saying that. It's, a, it's usually when they say that, they're like, what they're trying to say is say, I love you and I have hope for your beloved dead. And that's good. That's not what Christians believe about Jesus. Because how do I know that a person's soul is in heaven? It's a Hallmark card. Right? That, and I'll say this at funerals. It's like a Hallmark card. He's in a better place now. How do you know? Right? Maybe we're in Colorado. You might have smoked a little bit too much weed last night. Like, how do you know? Jesus Christ, then the Christians are the only, the only time in history that has made a serious claim that someone who is dead rose from the dead. There is nothing like it in history. My freshman year at CU, or not my freshman, my senior year at CU. Um, I think I probably told this story too because I only have a couple stories. My senior year at CU, I took a class on the rise and the fall of the ancient Roman Empire. The first day of class, the professor said, I am not a Christian, never have been. I do not believe in Jesus Christ. We must talk about Christianity in this class because you cannot tell this period of history without talking about it. And he said, there is nothing in history like the rise of the Christian church. There has never been anything in all of history like it. It is beyond explanation. And when you read serious scholars, it's, it's very difficult to explain why Christianity started. And here's, here's the crux of it. Go home tonight, think about this. This week, think about this. Here's the deal. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people were crucified by the Romans. It wasn't an anomaly. It was not an uncommon thing. It was very common. It happened all the time. And so, like, sometimes people think, well, Jesus on the cross, that's the proof of Christianity. No, it's not. If Jesus just died on the cross, Christianity would be nothing more than a footnote of history. Nothing. What happened, and my favorite story about this, at some point we're going to go in depth into one of the New Testament stories about this, which is Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. But what happens in Luke 24 is two, two Christian disciples, they saw the crucifixion, and they knew what it meant. And N.T. Wright says this, he says, when anyone saw someone die on a cross, what they thought was not, oh, that must be the Messiah. They never thought that. What they thought is, we bet on the wrong horse. When someone was killed by the Romans, that didn't mean they were the Son of God. It meant they weren't. 
Thousands of people were crucified by the Romans. They were experts at it. And can I tell you one more thing? This is, this, I can get emotional here. I can't help it. We, we have lots of evidence in history about crucifixions. Lots of it. Crucifixion is the most horrible, horrible, horrific thing you can possibly imagine. It was... Here's where it comes. Thanks, Mom. Um, it, was, it was designed very intentionally to cause the maximum amount of pain of shame and humiliation you can imagine. Crucifixion victims were crucified naked. And the whole purpose wasn't just to kill someone. The purpose was to send a message. And it was to say, if you do this, this is what happens to the enemies of Rome. Jesus was not crucified with a loincloth. We do that because it'd be kind of weird for little kids to come to church with the full male anatomy on display, right? He was crucified naked. When you're crucified, you lose control of all bodily functions. Crucifixion victims lose control of their bowels and their urinary tracts. Um, crucifixion, what happens, the way you die is you die from what's called asphyxiation. And what that is, is that you, the, your lungs begin to fill with fluid and you drown from the fluid filling up in your lungs. And the reason they did that is because you die very slowly, very painfully. Jesus is crucified in a very public place, very intentionally. Because the Romans are sending a message. They're saying, this is what happens if you cross Rome. Right? Um, we also know from Roman historians... I think it's Tacitus who says that the common practice was when someone was crucified, they cut out your tongue. Because when you, don't, when you are crucified, crucifixion victims utter the, the most horrific blasphemies you could possibly imagine. And so what, what the Romans did is they would cut out your tongue so that you couldn't do that. We have no record in anywhere in all of world history of what St. Paul says in Galatians 2. St. Paul, again, we know is a historical figure. Tons of evidence about this. We are more certain about St. Paul's life than we will ever be about the life of Homer. No one ever questions the life of Homer. No one, because they don't have a reason to. Paul, in Galatians 2, shortly after Jesus Christ dies... Paul never met him in his earthly life. Paul says, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Nowhere in any, anywhere in, the, in all of world history did someone look at a crucifixion victim and say, That person is on that cross because they love me. Never happened. And the only reason St. Paul wrote that, and the only reason that we're here tonight, the only reason is because he rose from the dead three days later. Um, I'm almost done. Jews weren't stupid. This is a modern prejudice. We call, I call it chronological snobbery. Um, chronological snobbery means that I'm better than other people because I lived after them. It's really stupid. Don't be a chronological snob. Um, the Jews weren't stupid. They knew that when you buried grandma... Like, if you bury grandma in Judaism, they don't leave a seat for her at the table because she might show up. 
They, they don't do that. They didn't think people rose from the dead. They didn't expect them to come back. There is no parallel. And what we're going to talk about next week is that it doesn't prove it, because I can never prove this the way science can prove something. And God doesn't want me to because he wants your heart and not just your mind. He wants your heart. And he wants you to take a risk. You can't be a Christian unless you take a risk. You can't sit on the sideline and say, I will follow you, Jesus, when you prove beyond all possible doubt, 100% scientifically, that you are God and that you will pay me a signing bonus when I sign on. can't do that. You'll never be a Christian. God demands of you, you take a chance. That's what faith is. Faith doesn't mean you know everything. Faith means, holy crap, this makes sense. And that speaks to me here, but it speaks to me here. And you know what, Jesus, I don't know everything, but you know what? I'll take a step. I'll take a step. So next week what we're talking about is that Jesus had, right, 12 close followers in his lifetime. One of them is named Judas. Don't be like him. The other 11, and this is, one, this is not a proof, but it's pretty powerful. It's a witness is what it is. Right? When you go to trial, there's witness testimony, and you have to decide if it's convincing or not. Um, it does not prove it. But the other 11, um, 10 of those 11 died as martyrs in horrifically painful ways. And a lot of people today will say, well, Christianity started because the, the followers of Jesus wanted to gain and they wanted to get ahead in life. That doesn't work. St. Peter was crucified upside down in St. Peter's Square in modern-day Rome. Well, it was ancient Rome, too. <laughs> and, and he could have gotten off. The, the emperor, all he had to do was deny Christ. And he wouldn't. And so they were going to crucify him, just like they crucified thousands of other people. And St. Peter refused to be crucified upside, at the right side up, because he said, I am unworthy to die in the same way as Jesus. By the way, if you read Dan Brown, which you shouldn't, um, <laughs> he'll say, so if, you, so if you go to Rome, if you go to Rome, you'll find upside down crosses. And if you read Angels and Demons or what, uh, the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown's like, look, upside down cross, demons, demons. No, it's, I'm like, you idiot. St. Peter refused to be crucified right side up because he was unworthy to die in the same way as Jesus. And so an upside down cross is not the sign of Satan, it's the sign of Peter. And he was crucified, I think it's the year 64. Anyway, so next week what we're going to talk about is like, you can't prove Christianity. I'm going to give you a hundred reasons why it makes sense to, and then I'm going to tug at your mind and your heart, and it makes sense of your entire life and why it's worth losing your life for this, but I can't prove it. And next week, what we're going to talk about is that the closest followers of Jesus Christ who are not philosophers, who are not scholars, who are simple, humble fishermen, died terrible deaths because they said that man rose from the dead, right? I watched him eat a piece of fish in front of me, and he is God. Sorry, it's emotional. Thanks, Mom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Lord God, we love you. Um, Jesus, thank you for giving meaning to our lives, that we are not created merely for comfort or for success or pleasure or power, but for so much more. Lord, I pray for everyone here tonight, for those watching at home. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us faith, uh, that our minds and our hearts would come together to see your glory, uh, that you would give us that gift of faith, uh, that you would give us peace and joy in following you. Uh, we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, any announcements? Okay, so I'll see that here. So there so we're gonna work on videos to make them easier to, to access and to just kinda organize and look through. Um, so that's gonna happen. If you come to class here, um, look forward to having you here. It's a great thing. I think it's good for you to be here in person. But also we understand if you're not comfortable with that, it's totally fine. So out of state people, we love you. Yeah. Can't believe you're watching out of state. That's just kind of weird. Um, <laughs> That's it. Okay, good night, everybody.